You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Joe. Good to be with you these few days. Thank you for all that you do for the Lord. It's a privilege to be a part of this family, talking about the body of Christ. And we kind of, by the grace of God, do what God has called us to do in Modesto. You do it where you are. And and it's just a good thing to be a part of all this. And again, thank you, Joe, for the invitation. Let's stand together and let's turn to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. And the angel... And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I'll come on you as a thief, and you will not know the hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, give us an ear to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we've come to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And there's no voice like your voice, Lord. And so speak to us. Continue to speak to us in this conference. Use this session, Lord, in the big picture of what you're wanting to say to us and fashion us into, Lord, during this time together. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm teaching this passage. I'm not accusing anyone of pastoring a dead church. I'm I'm just saying. So... You go wherever the Lord, you feel like the Lord is telling you. It's interesting to notice how this church saw itself in verse 1, their self-assessment. They had a name that they were alive. And that's how they saw themselves. That was their self-assessment, that they were a living church. And we'll see in just a moment, Jesus declared them to be dead, a stone dead, literally In the Greek, he declares them to be a corpse, not in the process of dying, but he declares that the church is dead. Now, I don't know how you picture the church of Sardis in your mind. I don't know how you picture a dead church, what it looks like, what are the characteristics uh, of that. Maybe you see the church of Sardis the way that some of the commentators do, and they declare it to be a picture of dead Protestantism, and your mind can be filled with the picture in your mind of an old, neglected, white clapboard church on the end of, at the edge of town, and filled with a dozen or so white-haired saints who gather together faithfully every Sunday, remembering what the Lord did many decades earlier in their history. Or maybe we can perhaps think, be tempted to think of some liberal mainline denomination that's struggling to keep its doors open. And that's what Sardis is uh, speaking to, the Holy Spirit is speaking to related to Sardis. And I don't like that imagery and I don't like to focus the letter in that way for a couple of reasons. One of which is it removes the letter too far from me. And I want the letter to search me and my heart as a pastor and to search the church that I do pastor. Second, 
those can't be the characteristics that Jesus is dealing with in terms of dying mainline liberal denominations or that church on the edge of town simply because it doesn't fit the description. Those kind of churches, they don't have a reputation for life. And everyone knows they don't have a reputation for life. And in the, you don't have to warn against becoming one of those kinds of churches because no one wants to become that kind of a church. Everybody knows in those situations that they are in a dead church. This church is dead and doesn't know that it's dead. Now, you notice in verse 1 that Jesus describes himself, or he just, uh, that Jesus describes himself, at, that Jesus himself rather describes Sardis as a working church. It's a bustling church. It's an energetic church. And he says, I know your works, and the word works there is ergon, and it means to labor, to work hard, to toil. We get our English word energy from the Greek word. And so it's an energetic church. Energy was being expended at the church of Sardis in all directions. And in my mind, on any given day of the week, the church of Sardis was really a picture of activity. If you were to attend it on any given Sunday, you would receive an education in terms of energy and in terms of activity. The signs were out. The parking lot was full. They had bulletins. They had greeters. They had ushers. They had children's church. They had youth ministry. They taught the Bible. They had all of these things. Their worship services, doubtless, high energy. So outwardly, it's the picture of spiritual health. And if you had asked anyone in the church of Sardis whether their church was alive or not, they would have be become defensive at even having the question posed to them. The very suggestion that their church could be dead. Of course we're alive. Look at all of the things we're doing. Look at all the activity that we're engaged in. And they didn't just have a reputation for being alive among those within the church, but also those outside of the church looked at Sardis and they came to the same conclusion. It's alive, they would say. Just ask anyone. Ask the neighbors. Ask the whole city what they think of the church of Sardis. Everyone to a person would say, boy, if there's a church that's alive in our community, it's the church of Sardis. That something is happening over there. But you notice Jesus' assessment in verse 1 of the same church, recorded there in verse 1, he said, but you are dead. Now, this is known as clarity in teaching. <laughs> Being clear enough that you not only uh, can be understood, but so that you can't be misunderstood. And Jesus certainly possessed that kind of clarity. This is as clear and direct as you can get. Now, this huge gulf that existed between their self-assessment of their church and Jesus' assessment of the same church tells me that dead churches are not as easy to identify as we might think. Again, no one would have guessed that this church was dead, and yet it was. This also tells me that the church at Sardis was operating under a completely different definition of success than the definition of success that Jesus operates under related to the kingdom of God. Now, you notice again in verse 1 that Jesus reveals the cause of their dead condition, and he reveals it in how he comes to this church. And we know that each of the seven churches that he wrote his letters to in the Revelation, he came to them with a self-description. And in his self-description, uh, there was something that the church either needed to be encouraged concerning his character or a description of himself, or related to the five of the seven churches that needed correction, there was something that they had forgotten about him, they were neglecting about his nature, and it was putting their church in danger as a result of, uh, of that. And so he, 
these churches desperately needed to be reminded of some aspect of Jesus, and he was faithful to remind them of that. And he came to Sardis, you notice, as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And I really like the Amplified Bible, and I think they're correct in their amplification when it states in that verse, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, that is, the sevenfold Holy Spirit and the seven stars. Now, that reference to the seven spirits, this isn't the first time that we run into that in the book of Revelation. We run into it at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so clearly in that introduction, this reference to the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is mentioned in that, in that introduction, and this is the name or the title that's given the description to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people look at the book of Revelation and they consider it to be a book that is uh, just hopelessly complex. No one can understand it, which really shouldn't be a conclusion that we come to about the book because the title itself is an indication that it's intended to be a revelation and not to be a complete mystery to us. The book of Revelation is made up of 404 verses, and fully 278 of those verses are direct references from the Old Testament. The key to understanding the book of Revelation and properly interpreting it is to understand the imagery and the context of the imagery in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation opens up to us as we discover its roots in the Old Testament. So the question then becomes, where in the Old Testament is there a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit? And there is one. Praise the Lord for that or we'd finish the study right now. <laughs> and the description is found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and I'd like you to turn there if you would. And the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit is written in the context of the coming Messiah, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would be upon Messiah's life. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and the branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And very simply, Jesus is telling us that the church of Sardis was a church that had lost sight of the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They were dead for the simple reason that they were no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit. They had ceased to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit for all of their activity. Now, activity and busyness and the expenditure of high energy is not always a sign of health in a church. It can be. But it isn't always a sign of that. And of course, we witness the proverbial chicken with its head cut off. It's an absolute study in activity. But the activity that's going on is merely an indication that the body has been separated uh, from the head. And I don't doubt that there is a, a similar temptation that's faced by the pastor of a church that has somehow unknowingly left a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. If and when we do that, we will sense that something is wrong, that something is missing in the church. 
And our first reaction so often is to simply generate more activity in the church, to frantically develop more and more ministries. And so we take, or we take to shouting our messages in order to try and give them the impact that uh, we sense that they're not having in the uh, time of teaching, or we determine to make our worship uh, in song louder and higher and higher energy. But those things can only mask the problem for a time. None of them actually solve the problem. And if the problem isn't properly identified and addressed, all that remains in a church is the inevitable uh, wilting up and the drying up of that church to where one or two at a time it begins to dawn on people within the church. We've got a lot of activity going on here, but there's no sense of the Holy Spirit in the midst of what's going on here. There's no witness of the Holy Spirit to what we're doing and to what we're saying. Now, Isaiah chapter 11, verse, verse 2 is an amazing ministry passage because it provides us with a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. Seven things that the Holy Spirit alone can bring to our lives as pastors and to the churches that we do pastor. Again, the context of the, the verse is God's description of what the anointing of the Holy Spirit would look like on the coming Messiah upon Jesus, and you simply can't have a, more, a better or more fruitful life and ministry than Jesus' life and ministry. Notice first that the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of the Lord. And so this speaks of the recognition that the Holy Spirit is God and that he is deserving of the same respect and the same reverence that we give to the Father and that we give to the Son. He is not to be ignored. He is not to be disregarded. And to forsake a dependence upon the Holy Spirit is to forsake a dependence upon God because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. And to forsake a dependence upon the Holy Spirit is to somehow come to believe that I can fulfill God's call upon my life and build a healthy church apart from God, apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, we would never say that out loud. We would never, ever believe such a thing theologically. But we can act like it practically. That's what's happening there in Sardis. Their problem is not theological. Their problem is practical and how they're conducting themselves. Sardis was a church that ceased to emphasize the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and ceased to depend upon him. And the problem with this is that we can no more ignore the person and work of the Holy Spirit and hope to have a successful living church then we can ignore Jesus and the Father and expect to have a living, successful church. One of the problems, both then and today, is that it is possible to grow an active, energetic church based upon human talent and based upon natural abilities, natural resources, as opposed to a dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit. You just hire the most talented people, and you brainstorm, and you plan, and you stage, and it's all lights, camera, action, but it will lack the witness and the voice of the Holy Spirit. No one should ever be able to explain the success and the life of the church that you pastor based solely upon the natural talent of the staff or those that serve at the church. No unsafe person should ever leave on a Sunday morning the churches that we pastor and, and ever be able to visit us 
and walk away and be able to explain it entirely as a product of the natural talents of the people that attend there. They should leave baffled by the fact that a, this church is thriving and enjoying a success and an impact that is way beyond, yes, way beyond what can be explained in terms of the natural talents of those who serve there, where they leave and they say, I don't know what I was in the middle of, but if there is a God, he is the only explanation <laughs> for why that many people would come together to do what it is that they just did there. God must be real and in the midst of them. I'll never forget a man by the name of George Markey. He's with the Lord now. His children continue to serve the Lord all around the world. I remember being in a conference, a regional conference like this in Indiana many years ago now. And George served as a missionary in Russia and then moved into the Ukraine at a time where everything was busting up and breaking up related to all of all of that. And when he came into the Ukraine, because the economy and the breaking up of the whole kind of USSR and that whole empire, people are out of work and, and people with PhDs were a dime a dozen. And so he had translators who, they had PhDs in multiple languages. They had people, he had people that he could pull to lead worship in the church that were symphony grade in terms of their expertise on instruments and their abilities in terms of vocally. And so he put these people into their place, began to use them in this kind of a way, and then he said a pivotal event occurred in his life, in his ministry in the Ukraine. And it was with that event that the ministry really began to take off. So he's got all of these translators. He's got these worship leaders. He's got all of this unbelievable natural talent. He's got professional people doing everything, but they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And he sensed something is blocking us, something is blocking us. And they went to prayer and they started to fill each of those positions with people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and not necessarily the most talented. And everything took off as a result of that. And his exhortation, in essence, was to find and use those who are spirit-filled and to esteem that as more valuable than natural talent. And I tell you, that's a good word. That's a very, very good word. And I receive that exhortation. The Lord brings it to my remembrance on a regular basis. The witness of the Holy Spirit in a human life is everything in terms of what we're involved in, in the kingdom of God. Again, we can, be no, we can no more ignore the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and hope to have a successful living church than we can ignore the Father or the Son and hope to have a living, successful church. If you have never read R.A. Torrey's book, The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit, you need to read that book. And then when you read it, Buy it in bulk for your leadership. And then if you have the resources, buy it in bulk and give it a free copy to each family in the church or at least charge them just the cost of purchasing the book and then watch what happens within the church as people come to understand the fullness of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Both R.A. Torrey and Martin Lloyd-Jones spent the last years of their very finite and precious lives traveling and speaking to churches about the need for the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so concerned were these 
seasoned veterans of Christian ministry late in their life so concerned at how much of professing Christianity was being operated outside of the involvement and the control of the Holy Spirit and the powerless Christians who were being produced as a result that they spent their final years and months speaking, trying to turn the body of Christ back to a real sensitivity and appreciation for the Holy Spirit. And their concern was not supremely with the neglect of Jesus or the neglect of God the Father, but a seeming willingness to neglect the Holy Spirit and somehow feel that there was no price to be paid for insulting him in that way. And they knew better. And their concern was dead orthodoxy. That was the concern of their age. Churches becoming teaching centers solely but neglecting the vital place of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life and forgetting that it is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the people of God. The Word of God must be there. It is foundational and primary, but the Spirit of God is a part of the equation as well. Second, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of wisdom. And the word wisdom that is used there speaks of the capacity to make right judgments, to make good decisions. And one of the indications that a church has left a dependence upon the Holy Spirit will be when the pastor or the ministry notices that a lot of bad decisions are being made one after the other. And you begin to notice we're making more bad decisions around here than we're making good decisions. We are backtracking on way too many decisions around here and say, what in the world is going on? Might be good to look related to the place of the Holy Spirit and our decision making. It's always a dangerous thing when more bad decisions are being made than good decisions in a local church because the people will notice it and they will then rightly question whether their leadership is listening to God or knows how to listen to God and it damages their confidence in our leadership and a church can only survive so much of that. Another indication that a church or a pastor has departed from a dependence upon the Holy Spirit concerning wisdom is prayerlessness. Always the lack of wisdom is, ties back to a lack of prayer and seeking the Lord related to the decisions that are being made. I remember a million years ago, when um, back when you would anybody would give you a cassette tape, you listened to it because there weren't that many of them floating around. And I had a friend who gave me a cassette tape of Arthur Blessed, the guy that takes that cross all around the world. I'm not endorsing everything, I'm just saying. So he gave me this cassette tape to listen to it. It impacted him. Arthur Blessed is in some kind of an arena where he's speaking, got to be multiplied, multiplied thousands of people. And boy, he said some really, really hard things to the pastors and to me that day in terms of listening to that cassette. And while he was talking about the lack of prayer, the subject of, of prayer, he said, I go out of the country and I go around the world. And he said, I come back to the United States. And as soon as I come back to the United States, he said, I'm surrounded by people who wear me out saying, Arthur, what's the word of the Lord? What's the Lord saying, Arthur? What's the word of the Lord? And he said, I, got, I get so sick and tired of hearing that from people. I turn around to them and I say, here's the word of the Lord. Read your Bible and pray. <laughs> it did me good to hear that. Sometimes I still hear his voice off of that cassette tape. The Spirit of God speaks the same thing to my heart, and it's stuck with me through the years. We can get wisdom and we can get vision 
from the very best source possible, the Holy Spirit. We can get that for ourselves, right from the Holy Spirit, and we need to. How much of your church and my church, the Lord's church, but what we pastor, how much of the church you pastor, its vision, its activities within it, are a product of the Holy Spirit's direction and answer to prayer as opposed to the gleanings of the last five best-selling books in Christianity that you've read. A church never becomes a church of Sardis except that its leaders are guilty of prayerlessness. They stop seeking the Holy Spirit for wisdom because the wisdom of man is so readily available and it is so relatively cheap and easy to access. But what if everyone does that? What if nobody's listening to the Holy Spirit? What if everybody is trusting that somebody else is listening to the Holy Spirit, but nobody is? Then you end up with a church of Sardis being multiplied all over the place, and no one has the discernment to realize that something is wrong. Which brings us to our next point. Third, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of understanding. That word understand refers to discernment, the ability to distinguish, to see the heart of an issue. Where a situation looks like one thing to us, as we look at it through the natural man, but God sees that same situation and he sees it for what it is. He sees it way more clearly than we see it. I think about the Apostle Paul at the city of Philippi ministering there. You remember that girl with the spirit of divination. She's got a, a demon inside of her. And she's saying all the right things, telling everybody, listen to these men, for they preach the way of everlasting life. It all looks right. It all sounds right. Paul realizes by the Holy Spirit that she's demon-possessed, and he casts the demon out of her because the Holy Spirit helped him to understand and discern a situation beyond what we can understand with our, our senses. How many situations are we in on a regular basis as leaders where people sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, they just give us one side of the story, they selectively feed us facts and attempt to get us to make a decision that they want us to make. It all looks great on the surface, but God knows that what is really happening is a manipulation here and an attempt to get us to make the decision that they want us to make, and then he doesn't, he doesn't give us as a result of it. He doesn't give us a piece to proceed. He sees the picture, and you look at it, and you say, everything looks right, everything sounds right, everything feels right, but I don't have any peace. I don't have, something's wrong with my peace. I don't have a peace about saying yes here. I don't have a peace about moving forward here. Something's wrong, something's wrong. Never, ever go against your peace. Let the peace of God rule in your heart, Colossians 3.15. Let it umpire. Every time I've gone against the peace of God, it's been a mistake. Every time in ministry, in life, period. Never go against that peace. It's one of the ways he speaks to us as leaders. He speaks to us supremely through his word. That is the peerless source of wisdom in his voice. But he also speaks to us through giving us a peace or removing peace related to a situation. And the leadership of the church at Sardis had zero discernment and didn't even notice it because they had abandoned their dependence upon the Holy Spirit for it. They had no idea, zero, none, that they were dead 
for all of their energy and all of their activity. Now, if you sit and you listen to that and you think about another church or say, yes, I know that Grabois, I'll tell you, he ought to be preaching over at that conference. But I don't read it that way. It's in the book for me. And when I read that they are capable of that lack of discernment, I know I'm from the same gene pool of Adam and Eve. I'm just as capable of it. And it scares me. It scares me what I'm capable of as a pastor. Years ago, we used to be warned at pastors' conferences that there was a world of difference between a soulish experience in a church and a spiritual, truly spiritual experience in church. And a soulish experience is one that appeals to the fallen nature of man, the carnal nature of man. It's oftentimes very emotional, solely emotional, in what is attempting to be accomplished in the hearts and lives of the people that are, are being spoken to. And a soulish experience, for instance, in worship would be to choose the worship set with people supremely in mind. We have people in mind, but not supremely at the forefront of our mind in determining a worship set for a service. But a soulish experience is all the thoughts go completely toward what's going to move them, what will excite them, what will make them feel good, what will bring them back as opposed to being supremely concerned with seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit. What does God want to hear from his people today? What does God know that we're going through, that we need to sing to him and about him because it will bless him, but it will bless us as well? What does God want to hear? What does he know we have a need to sing? A soulish set of worship songs would be filled with songs that are filled with I and me and my, completely man-centered and me-focused rather than God-centered. And because we lack discernment, we unknowingly expand the same self-focus and the same self-absorption of the culture right into what is supposed to be the worship of God and then wonder why there is no witness of the Holy Spirit in the worship. But because it moved people emotionally, we automatically think that that means they had a spiritual experience. There's a world of difference between a purely emotional experience and a spiritual one. Now, we're to love God with all of our heart, emotion, mind, soul, and strength. There's a place for emotion in it, but it's never to be solely an emotional experience or purely one rather than a spiritual one. And increasingly, in my humble opinion, I exhort myself, fewer and fewer Christians and Christian leaders seem to know the difference between a spiritual experience and an emotional experience. And the same thing is true in teaching where the teaching of the word isn't God-centered, but it's man-centered. It's not done in order to glorify God, but to exalt man. And so the sermons are about how to achieve human potential and how to use godly principles to become prosperous or how to learn to forgive myself and to love myself and lots of stories that keep people emotionally engaged, and, and they absolutely do. The people leave the service thinking they've just had a spiritual experience at church, when all it was was an emotional one, it was stirred up the emotions, but it didn't nourish their inner man. It did not nourish their spiritual man. And with a merely soulish experience, there's no lasting change in people's life. There's no fruit that remains. And the next day, they wake up and they head out into a pagan culture with essentially a sugar rush from the day before that cannot hold up to the culture and the hour in which God has called us to stand for God and to serve God. But a spiritual experience, it lasts. It brings lasting change. It produces lasting energy and nourishment and growth. 
if we make much of God in our services, the Holy Spirit will make much of the service in blessing people and in a way that is truly spiritual. I don't want to nitpick related to the body of Christ. I love the body of Christ. Sometimes I listen. I'm in places just like you are, and I'm sitting and I'm listening, and the whole thing is an emotional experience. And you sit there and you say, I'm in a room where this is a purely emotional thing that is going on. Nothing happening here is spiritual, and yet the whole room is convinced that what is happening is spiritual. And it alarms me because I see it increasing. Fourth, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of counsel. And here counsel speaks of the ability to to devise a right course of action, to plan, to form a strategy or a plan for the future. Who but God knows the future? Only God knows the future. And the world's becoming more and more fragile, more and more volatile by the day, more and more seemingly uncertain, and who would want to devise any kind of a plan about next week or next month, let alone next year, independent of the Holy Spirit. Five, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of might. In other words, he provides us with the might, the physical strength, the physical and spiritual power to do what we do. And as Christians and pastors and Christian workers, we cannot do what we do in our own strength. And God knows that, and thus he provides us with a power to get up there and teach one more time, to stand alone and make the hard decision one more time, to continue to face the persecution and the misunderstanding and the spiritual warfare that's involved in this calling and so forth. Who in the world could do this apart from God's power? I have a friend who pastors a church in the Midwest, and he's ex-law enforcement, 20-year SWAT in the Bay Area of California. It's a tough place. And he became a Calvary Chapel pastor. He said, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I thought to myself, good, I'm not crazy. <laughs> it was so reassuring to me. I didn't comfort him at all. I was just totally self-consumed at the moment. <laughs> it's important that as pastors and leaders we communicate to the body that we pastor that this Christian life is a supernatural life. It is a supernatural life. Cannot be lived apart from the Holy Spirit, the blessing of, of the Holy Spirit. And that includes the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It includes the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It includes all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It includes environments and opportunities for a person to come to recognize what their gifting is from God and to grow in that gifting. And if we neglect the supernatural might of the Holy Spirit in a church, but we continue to faithfully teach the Word of God, we will be producing Romans chapter 7 Christians. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I do. If we only teach the what of God's Word to the neglect of the how of the Holy Spirit behind His Word, then we're going to be pastoring a whole congregation that's going to try to do it in their own strength, and they're going to end up in that place. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul moves from Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8, which is all about the Holy Spirit. I lived a little bit of time in my Christian life in Romans chapter 7. I am not interested in going back. I lived it. I'm going to huff and puff and blow your house down. And I mean, I thought, what a world of difference. 
We need to be comfortable with everything about the Holy Spirit, everything about his anointing, everything about his gifting. And it's important that the churches that we pastor, every single person in that church is equally comfortable with the things of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give us that kind of power. We need to believe in the supernatural of this Christian life and not only believe it for our own lives, but to impart that to other people. I tell people all of the time, going into afterglows especially, the Christian life is a supernatural life. Again, our lives should not be able to be explained by anyone in and of ourselves and our own natural abilities. There must be something supernatural about our lives for people to recognize that we are different because of God's presence in our life. Six, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of knowledge of the Lord. And this is the Holy Spirit gives the supernatural ability to know to understand God. Without the Holy Spirit, the book is a closed book. We don't. <laughs> you try to put a sermon together apart from the Holy Spirit. Only thing worse is then delivering that sermon. <laughs> Without the Holy Spirit, we're going to miss the depth of the Word of God, the meaning of the Word of God. All of that's going to be lost to us. And we need him to share with us his knowledge of the scripture, to give us the word of knowledge, to by revelation show us what we couldn't otherwise see in that book in our own natural man. But I want you to notice, too, that the context of that word knowledge, it relates to the Lord. And the last line of verse 2, both knowledge and fear are related to the Lord. And so this isn't talking supremely about the Holy Spirit giving us supernatural knowledge of God theologically, but that the Holy Spirit helps us to come to know God personally, experientially. It's the equivalent of the word gnosko in the New Testament, the knowledge that comes by experience. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit who alone takes us deeper and deeper in our personal relationship with God. No one else can do that. He's the one that does that. And how can he do that except that we give him daily quiet time? It's not about putting our sermon together for our next Bible study, a time that's just set aside and say, Lord, this is about my relationship with you and your relationship with me. And I think as pastors, we're, I think we're about the most vulnerable people in the whole world because no one will tell us the truth about ourselves. Not one in a thousand. Not one in a thousand Christians will come to a pastor and confront us related to something. It's not worth the aggravation. It's not worth the risk. But even among our own lives, so often as pastors, we can see a person, we can see another pastor run through one stop sign after another, after another, after another. We know this is going to end in a crash and burn. Nobody says a word until afterwards, I saw it coming. Or you saw, I saw it coming too. Nobody says anything. And that's just kind of the, the way that it is. And thus, we must have a consistent daily time with God through his Holy Spirit, speaking through his word to tell us about ourselves what no one else will tell us. Or well, we're dead. We're dead. One of the imagery that I love related to the word of God is that it's a mirror Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Not you, buckaroo. <laughs> Let's talk about that. In the privacy of that little place in my house, he's able to talk with me about a lot of things that he knows nobody else will say to me. 
Nobody else will run the risk to do that. And he's faithful to do it. The Holy Spirit will never stop working in our lives. No matter what our calling as Christians. Until our daily devotional relationship with God becomes the sweetest part of our life. And if you're not in that place, just know he will not quit until that is the sweetest and single most important part of your life and part of your ministry. Why? Because this thing that God has called us into is all about the relationship. It's all about the relationship. And the ministry is not supremely about God accomplishing things through our lives, but about the depth of relationship that we develop with him as a result. That's what it's about to him. That's what's important to him. He could get done with angels with so much less aggravation than using us. And our influence for the kingdom of God will never, ever rise above our personal relationship with him. It just won't happen. And like Sardis, we may learn how to attract and entertain and busify a crowd of people, but it will not make a significant dent for the kingdom of God apart from that relationship and that relationship with the Lord. And seven, he's described as the spirit of the fear of the Lord. In other words, the Holy Spirit provides us with this deep, deep respect and reverence for God that we would not otherwise possess. And I love the Lord, and I know the Lord loves me, but I fear him. I fear him. And I don't know how all that works together. I just know that somehow it all works together and it does something good in me. I respect him. I reverence him. And I fear him. And without the fear of the Lord, we're going to be prone to do operate under the influence of the fear of man, which is always a snare, it's a trap, or we will become proud and self-will in the ministry and we'll end up doing some very dumb things that will mar our testimony and, and uh, mar our effectiveness. I think about Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament with the false fire. It's a great study for today. The false fire, not, all, not commanded of God, came from their flesh, a desire to be seen, all of that whole thing. No fear for the Lord. And what pastor can have the fear of the Lord? I want to be gentle here, but I want to say it. What pastor can have the fear of the Lord and look to draw people to himself to build a church on his personality, his charisma. Again, years ago in conferences like this, we used to be warned against the temptation in ministry of drawing people to ourselves personally and then saying to ourselves, it's okay to do because then I will point them to God. It's a dangerous place when we become the attraction rather than God. And often this attitude can reveal that the pastor doesn't feel that the Holy Spirit can make God attractive to people on his own, but he needs a little bit of help. And so the pastor feels constrained to be everything he thinks that God isn't. Hip, cool, dynamic, fashionably dressed, culturally relevant, all of these things. Now, if you are all of those things and that is who you are, God bless you, you're one in a million. There are some people that are just naturally cool. You just keep being that. But if I feel I have to be all of this because God isn't that, to build a bridge from the culture to God, uh, that's just not a place anybody wants to be. So he becomes the main attraction of the church. But again, he convinces himself it's okay because as the people are drawn to him, then he'll be faithful to point them to God. 
but one of the problems with this is that God won't participate in that. He simply will not participate in that because he won't share his glory with any man. He won't honor it or involve his Holy Spirit in it because it dishonors him. And the cult of personality is very, very strong, alive and well in the culture, and it is alive and well in the church like never before in my lifetime because people are hungry for heroes and they're eager to build a dependence upon man and we don't do them or God any favors when we allow them to do so. Now, in light of all of this, who in their right mind would want to serve the Lord cut off from those seven things? Who could survive? What church could hope to survive? And that's precisely Jesus' point. And you notice the solution, verses 2 and 3? Be watchful. He says, wake up to your condition. They needed to wake up to their true condition. He told them, verse 2, strengthen the things that remain. Don't let it spread any further than it's gone. Reverse the course and what hasn't yet died. And then you notice those two words, and I want you to circle them, at least in your mind in verse 3, the word remember and the word how. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. And Jesus was calling upon them to remember the time in their church history when things were different, when there was a greater dependence upon the Holy Spirit. In other words, they hadn't always been what they were at this time. They had begun with a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. They had left that. So he says, remember when all that was going on in the history of your church. The problem there, and, and, and you notice that what they were to remember is how they had received and heard. Notice he doesn't call them to remember what you have received and heard, but how. The problem again here is not doctrinal like Pergamos and Thyatira. They were not a dead church because they'd forgotten what they had received and heard, but because they had forgotten how they had received and heard. And how had they received and heard? Once, no doubt, with an absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It's funny how we begin all of this in our service to the Lord, we're completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And then we get some experience. And then we get some resources. And sometimes we can be far more spiritual if the truth be made known early in our ministries than ever we are decades later. The Church of Sardis was an example of that. Once, without having all of the answers and very aware of their inadequacy, help me, Lord, help me to get through this. Lord, apart from you, I can't do anything. And then now that kind of urgency related to the Holy Spirit had left the church. And Jesus was calling the church of Sardis back to the same dependence on the Holy Spirit that marked the early days of the church. And that's something that's worth thinking about in our own churches and in our own ministries. The churches that we pastor are only truly alive to the degree that they are led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis, it's good food for thought. This is no time, even as Joe opened us up with the prayer needs that are going, no time in human history to be pastoring a dead church. God help us. And he always will. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you will say things that no one else will say. And thank you, Lord, for your grace and your love and your faithfulness and your commitment to us. And we just pray for one another here today that wherever this 
passage of scripture is intended to correct a current situation that you would do that, Lord, through your word in our hearts this morning. And then, Lord, wherever this is supposed to be preemptive and to be set up in our hearts as a protection to future temptations to take the path of Sardis, we pray you would give it that deep, needed place, Lord, to protect the wonderful thing that you are doing in your grace through our lives in blessing people and pointing them to you. So we ask that you continue the ministry of your Holy Spirit through this passage. Bring it to our remembrance as we have need the rest of the days of our pilgrimage. We ask it of you in Jesus' name. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.